without my appearance touched up, I'll blush. There's, there's no shame. There's no shame in wearing makeup, Calvin. You know, this is 2020. We don't shame people for how they want to present themselves anymore. You could call me soft, Calvin, for the remainder of the episode. It's so smooth. You shaved uh, recently or something, or no? It just never. looks smooth. <laughs> never. <laughs> it just grows in all natural and beautifully <laughs> sculpted like that. Yeah. Um, I I wouldn't shave ever again. Ezra keeps begging me not to shave now. Every day she asks me, "Are oh, you going to shave the beard?" So I can't do it now. It's, yeah, yeah, there's always that point where you reach where you got a good beard going, and then you're like, "Well, I, I can't now." And then yeah, when when you do finally decide to cave in because it turns summertime and it's super hot and you don't want to sweat <laughs> in your face all the time, then then you kind of have to keep it up for a while, and then you remember, "I hate shaving. Why am I doing this?" <laughs> <laughs> Shaving's the worst. I mean, I don't know. It, would you get like an electric surgery so you never have to shave again, or is the beard too worth it? I, I don't get enough beard, really. Okay. Like my my attempts at beards, especially particularly around the the mustache area, it's yeah. pathetic. It's it's so small. It looks like I drew it on. I think I do better with the mustache area. I could be like a '70s ironic cop if I shave the rest off. I I feel like I could grow a good one. I have to trim that every day though. Yeah, it's it's hard as well because the the ladies always send you mixed signals. One day they really like the hair, and then the other day it hurts and pokes them too much. So you're like, all right. My wife keeps offering to shave about half off. Um, I I don't think I can do it. I, she's trying to trick me into shaving some of it. If you, if you could go lower with the beard, would you? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm yeah. Like definitely go full going. full ZZ Tom. Full ZZ top. <laughs> I I just like having it too. It's nice because it it feels like I could hide behind something. That's why they call them beards, right? Yeah, you can keep all your your true expressions to yourself. No one can I, know how how baby face you are underneath. With the mask and a beard, then I'm especially covered. Nobody cared who I was until I put the beard on. <laughs> <laughs> Should I get to the weight loss now? I know we said we'd address it eventually. Oh, yeah. That was, that was something you were supposed to be working on. And, uh, of course, with my great memory, I made sure to <laughs> ask you before we got on here. to. Or should so I, should I save it? I'm not even done yet. So should I just save the... I mean, the, the, the road to weight loss is never over, is it? No. You either uh, die 90 pounds or you live long enough to see yourself go back on the McDonald's diet. <laughs> that's I, that's two Dark Knight references so far in this podcast. I should yeah, you're doing stop. good. <laughs> uh, save it for when we do Nolan. I don't think we're ever going to do Nolan. We'll probably never discuss Tenet on this podcast. No, I, I don't imagine we will, if we'll go see it. Like, by the time it actually comes available to us, like, we no one will have any interest in seeing it anymore. And it, it, it kind of sucks because Nolan has toted himself as this you know intensive necessary cinematic experience <laughs> and when there's no opportunity or it's irresponsible to go to the cinema then uh, you know you, you've kind of lost your entire brand i know i mean i i only really love nolan because i love the big format i i couldn't call myself a nolan fan in any capacity really i like prestige and uh dunkirk i would i would talk about prestige and memento on the podcast because i think they're both good films great films even particularly the prestige there's something very entertaining about it and uh you know if david bowie is in your movie in any capacity it can't be all all the way bad everything that has david bowie at least has that going for it you could always know david bowie yeah so uh that's the zoolander seal of approval from the twin geek cast here <laughs> When, oh, this air conditioner's on. It's on it, low. So you have know. an air conditioner on when we have like 80 mile per hour winds going through the state right now? <laughs> All the, the windows house, are closed. It's, it's, it's crazy weather outside right now. I guess that's, that's a good way to open up and discuss here as well. Uh, we're, we're getting blankets of ash flown in all over the state right now. I went out last night and I could barely breathe. It was completely clear. I took Ezra on a walk to pick berries and... Then suddenly, like, gusts of wind started carrying. I started getting stuff in my eyes I, while we were walking. It was like a sudden change. Is it is it true that it's it's all from the 7,000-acre wildfire in California that was started because of a gender reveal party that went wrong? <laughs> I think ours is from eastern Washington. I think we had some fires out there that's blown in. I, I don't uh, yeah, because uh, I, I would have been, been really surprised if it made it all the way up from California, but, like, it, the news coincided with the the ash and high winds up here, so I'm like, 
is is that it? Am I making the right correlation? There was like a two summers ago where we had the whole summer we were smoked in from California. So it, it is totally possible. It's just not this time, I believe. It's it's happened, you know, like that yeah. that shit does travel far. I remember in like elementary school I did a project on the Mount St. Helens eruption and you know, people heard it from Canada, which is yeah. crazy to think about. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I think if it if it erupted again, I guess it would bury us. I, there's a lot of active volcanoes out here. Like the Pacific Northwest doesn't have a lot of calamities, but if we had one, we'd all be covered in ash. We'd be Pompeii again. Yeah, I, I think we have a, a little bits in like the Ring of Fire and such, you know, all the volcanoes kind of going in the circle around the world, but it's it's not really that bad. Like volcanoes are kind of lower on the list of societal problems to worry about, I think. Yeah, like like in Sim City, first you worry about the Godzilla, then you then you create like the volcanoes and widespread fires. I, I think but, we do we do have a chance of that, especially being close to the ocean and fears of the tectonic plates opening up and having you know <laughs> kaiju's rise out of the the waters. Uh, we're we're pretty close to the ocean there, and uh, in the same body of water as Japan is, you know, and they're often ravished with those first. So uh, we're I think next in terms of uh, Godzilla panics. Uh, so I, I would definitely put Godzilla's above volcanoes in terms of things Likely Washingtonians it. need to worry about. I, I totally agree. And we are living in a SimCity simulation where someone's left the computer running. That that makes so much more sense when, when you think about it in that terms. Uh, the Matrix is actually very real, and uh, they're, they're having to reboot things right now. Um, speaking of the red pill, I saw Mulan. Oh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm kind of actually curious... Uh, did, did you actually have an interest and sought this out yourself? Because I know m- most people, or at least most people say on the internet that they are boycotting the <laughs> film uh, for very good reasons. And, and so I was a little surprised when you got a screener for it. Did you seek it out or did it... I'm guessing you had to seek it out because I don't think Disney is just handing that shit out to people. I did email Disney for it and uh, I have reviewed it on the site. I gave it a pretty positive review, which I wasn't expecting. I thought I would be strongly against it. Yeah, well, and and I think it's easy to want to be strongly against it because of all the political entanglement that's gone on with the the uh, support of the, the Chinese government and decrying of the Hong Kong protesters that happened during the filming of it by the, the film's lead actress. And now with the recent news of the... Uh, uh, filming near the uh, uh, prison camps. Uh, the, so they they the filmed in the Xinjiang region of China, which is very large region. It's like Alaska size. But the problem with that is that not that they shot there specifically, because there's just parts of the Silk Road that are shot there. So uh, segments of outdoor Mulan are shot in Xinjiang. Um, the problem is that they credited four agencies, which are um, deeply involved with uh, the messaging around genocide of Muslims in China. The the Uyghur uh, population specifically, if you've been uh, paying attention to the news, this is a major ongoing act of uh, genocide being uh, perpetrated by the, the Chinese government. There's not really any other way to say it. And it's kind of a shocking thing you don't want to throw around lightly, but you know, no. it is... It's reported. It's out there. It exists. And Disney could have is pretty culpable for that, I think, because uh, that was happening while they were filming. I read the report that if they landed in the airport in Xinjiang and then they took a car to their filming location, they would have passed at least seven of these camps, um, seven concentration camps. So how could you not be aware? They have to be aware and ignoring that. Yeah. Well, and I think in general, like society is as a whole, it's not too dissimilar from you know, in the the 30s and 40s with the, you know, uh, the world's awareness of the concentration camps of the, you know, the the Nazis held the Jewish people in and such. And, um, you know, in in the same way, we're seeing history kind of repeat itself and how people are complacent to it and uh, not willing to do anything because it could disrupt their their profits and their way of life. Yeah. And um, it it disturbs me ideas like the creator of this, saying that she's from the culture of Disney or something. And it's like everything else that's political and real is on the back burner. And she's just looking through it through a different frame. But 
somehow she made a very different movie from the Disney movie. Um, so I think Disney really took a lot of shortcuts and a lot of ideas that please China, which to me makes it a more interesting film, but also very politically, uh, I, you don't want to touch it. I mean, it's, it's a gross movie. It's It's really hard to dissect it from the current political landscape of, of our relationship with uh, China right now, which is which is tough because there's certainly a validity to making the film more authentically Chinese in its mm. identity and, and reaching more into the culture and, you know, like playing it less like the cartoon and stuff, which was very obviously American appealing with only the minuscule hints of genuine Chinese influence. There's an idea too that it's the largest person of color cast in one of these big movies other than like Black Panther. I mean, there's never been a Asian-led movie where every major character is like this in a high-budget, you know, Disney thing. So. Yeah, in a, in a Disney thing specifically. We've been seeing more of the rise of, uh, you know, Asian-American, particularly Chinese-American filmmakers uh, and making more specifically Chinese-American-oriented stories on the market recently and the mass success of those with like The Farewell and Crazy Rich Asians. And uh, I think you recently thought, was it Lucky Grandma? I think it was. Yeah, Lucky yeah. Grandma I really loved. And that is another Chinese-American New York story. And that's very integrated in that culture. Whereas this is very mainland China and it's very um, about those authoritative uh, patriarchy roles. Uh, even her empowerment and freedom is based on ideas of men. So uh, there's there's a difference here, but but also there's a lot of suspect things and you could look at it politically and divorce it from what the movie is itself. And there, there's plenty of reasons to boycott it. I don't think there's a reason to boycott a company like Disney because at that scale, I don't think it matters. But I mean, I think people need to know what they're supporting. It's Well, it's hard to, when we talk about boycotting, boycotting is one of the most important and functional uh, works of uh, protest and change that we as individuals have, but we have to do it as a grand collective. It's very, very difficult to organize large movements like that. And it usually takes long periods of time for that to, to manifest genuinely. Yeah. And, you know, a, we're week, a week after the release of a huge Disney movie isn't going to help it. Right. Well, and, and like you said, Disney is such a huge and all encompassing conglomeration that it's uh, almost impossible. It feels like to really make an impact at this point, but uh, at the same time, every action does count. And, you know, it's not about one massive action changing things. It's a bunch of little ones slowly chipping away and making, the difference and having our voice heard through what we choose to consume and so i think boycotting this uh, particular work is is a smart move for people if they can but at the same time it's not going to show like an obvious uh impact at, at this rate because we're also fighting a cult of of disney so to speak uh i mean that's obviously a very disparaging term but it is you know there there is a very grand fervor around the Disney brand, which has been equally built up over decades. I mean, when people say they're from the culture of Disney, I, I feel like that's a scary thing that I would put in like a twisted horror movie. <laughs> like, like white people say they're from the culture of Disney and they identify this way. That That's terrifying to me. It's uh, just in general, I think it's always scary when you don't want to uh, when someone is unable to separate themselves from their interests or their likes like those things become their identity and it's very yeah. easy to allow that to happen coming from you know the perspective of cinephilia i think we all can relate that sometimes it's it's very easy to let your emotions and your identity get entangled with the things that you love the movies and the art that you love and it feels like a personal attack when somebody doesn't um entirely cohere to the, the thing that you love uh i might you know, keep that in mind for later on in the show <laughs> um there's it's a fine movie um that the other problem i have is that i like the movie um so yeah. if you're going to support it it comes out december 4th for free so possibly don't rent it for 30 dollars and watch it just when it comes free i mean you don't have to support it right now. If you want to boycott it, wait and watch it later if you have to. I am, I am curious, Calvin, not to put you uh, in the hot seat here, but uh, despite all of the conflicting feelings here, you obviously did choose to reach out and see the film. 
Uh, and I'm kind of curious as to what compelled you that. Was it just an interest in it and a, and a lack of feeling like a boycott would matter? Or did you think that you had, like, it, it was your, your duty or something to give perspective on this film, complicated feelings and all? I really wanted to give the feelings of the film. And I was seeing a lot of the earlier reviews weren't even mentioning any of the political conflicts. So, uh, Part of me was also encouraged just by all our CL film critic members being like, yeah, it's one of the best movies of the year. And oh. I, I was like, oh, I, I don't know if I should even look into this, but uh, but I want to write a take that's, that I feel is more valid that I'm not seeing represented. So uh, just to do something like that, it was worth it for me. It, uh, another thing is that uh, there are things about the movie that the costume design is gorgeous. It, it'll obviously win for that category if we have an Oscars, I believe. Um, there's uh, the Leo Ify, I think that's how you pronounce her name, but she's the lead actress and uh, very complicated, but she's very good here too. I mean, she looks great on screen and the Wuxia vibe, the uh, cribbing from like Crouching Tiger, that stuff's fun. Disney have like finally freed up the camera so it moves, it's dynamic. Um, it feels like a good uh, martial arts heroes film. Uh, I it's fine. I wouldn't say it's good or great, but it's a it's a fine one. Very passable. Gentleman six. Uh, I I do appreciate that you reached out. Like like your intent was to provide a perspective on on both the film in an objective sense, as well as to not skirt around the complex political issues kind of revolving yeah. around the production. Uh, you know, it's always a hard line to toe uh, in terms of talking about those those complex things about you know, problematic filmmakers or films or, or issues surrounding them and stuff. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore or, um, you know, uh, repress the art, so to say. There's still important works to examine, but they shouldn't be separated by their beliefs entirely. Like the, the converse, both conversations need to happen simultaneously, not necessarily impacting one another, but they, they both need to exist in the same place. I mean, I admire all our other critics from Seattle Film Critics Society. They do a good job, but just to complete the conversation, I feel like one of us needed a review that even brought to light what was happening. Yeah. Um, so I think it's complimentary to what they did, and I just wanted that voice out there as well. I think it was an important thing, and I was very happy to see that uh, come up in your review, uh, even if it was a, a positive take, and uh, somehow it ended up being better than <laughs> Aladdin. It, it's so much better than Aladdin. I mean, uh, there, there are parts I really don't like like textually about the movie they they take the singing out to appease china they want to be very serious they want to be like the uh, poem or folk song of mulan that has been around china for hundreds of years they want to go back to that but it's weird because now they've made that a disney property like it's not just a continuation of mulan the cartoon it's like Chinese culture is now Disney property. It's it's a very strange place to be. Well, and they, they really want to please China. They want to open yeah. park there. I mean, Bob Iger said that's the best thing that happened to the company since they built in Florida. So the whole point of this is opening a Chinese theme park. Let's be honest. Well, they, they've had success with, uh, you know, uh, major theme parks in that area as well, particularly like like Shanghai Disney as well as a major mm -hmm. success and such. And, and it's no surprise at this point, you have to consider as well that uh, Disney is almost more so a theme park company than it is a movie yeah. company. Make so much money off of those in particular. Uh, I mean, even, is... even the movies you see are like events. They're like going on a ride, right? Like Avengers is like going on a theme park ride and the feelings about the same. Yeah. They know that. And, and that's always what they're doing. They're looking to collect more properties that they can make attractive theme parks off of. And then they're taking their old properties uh, that they base theme parks off of and, you know, changing them into things that are more relevant now to people. Like, uh, you know, the, the Twilight Zone ride is now a Guardians of the Galaxy ride, which is sad for people like me who like <laughs> the Twilight Zone more than Guardians of the Galaxy. But, you know. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that's really weird to me. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, you know, the 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 tower of terror the drop ride oh. that was super successful of course at all the theme parks they've they've transformed them all into guardians of the galaxy rides no there was uh just just recently they closed down the tcm sponsored great movie ride in california oh. which was awesome if not a little hokey it's, it's kind of a, sh a showcase of uh you, you got to go look up a youtube video of the ride if you never got to check it out but you go through and they have uh you know, like like you stop in and hit all these classic uh, movie moments. Like you get a scene with uh, 
Rick and Ilsa and Casablanca. There's a whole gangster scene as an homage to the public enemy and stuff. But it also has like I love that stuff. That it has weird things like perfect. like Alien is stuck in there at one moment, <laughs> which is which is like an insistence of uh, Michael Eisner who wanted to really appeal to his son who thought Disney was lame. <laughs> but anyway, is, they I guess. they uh they. They, they tore that down recently, or, or not tore down, they refashioned the ride into a, a Mickey Mouse theme runaway <laughs> railway ride, which I hear oh, is super cool. Like I've seen okay. and stuff and it's like a super cool, new, innovative trackless ride, which is awesome. But, you know, at the same time, sad to see this, you know, vestige of, you know, cinephilia in, in a Disney park kind of go away. Uh, I'd like to know what happened to the animatronic you know Rick Blaine from Casablanca and see you want the animatronic you want to try to find him yeah I want to I want to find a disproportionately tall Humphrey Bogart to have in my house because they, they had to, it, it, and that's the weird one of the weird things about the that thing I'm going into too much theme park history no, here fine. but you know because uh, uh Humphrey Bogart was a relatively shorter guy he was shorter than uh, uh Ingrid Bergman so in, in the shots in Casablanca, like you got that famous close-up of them at the, the tarmac and stuff. He's standing on an apple box, so he, he's a little yeah. bit taller than her in the shot. So he looks yeah, more, that. more masculine. And, and so in order to keep that proportion right in the, uh, the, the theme park or in the ride there, the great movie ride, they had to make him actually taller than he was in real life. So the, the Humphrey Bogart that they had in the great movie ride is probably like uh, a head and a half taller, uh, taller than the real Humphrey Bogart, which is, which is weird. <laughs> I really miss the theme park. I, that's one thing I want to do when, when they come back. Yeah. I would, I would love to go as well. We should vacation together. Let's yeah. go to Disney world or something. I don't know. Yeah, I'd love or, to. or other ones, maybe universal universal is pretty cool too. Not, not very farm. Not very. I don't know much about. Yeah. I feel like we talked about theme parks recently. It was, yeah. It was, we had that theme park doc. Yeah, the action park one. That's what it was. Class See, action park. It's okay. <laughs> this is uh, obviously just a sign that we need to get to that uh, Haunted Mansion movie review and just <laughs> skip it and talk about Disney rides, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm down for that. Um, I, I, should we go like Pirates of the Caribbean? Nobody will listen if we do. Maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. Nobody wants to hear us talk about <laughs> that shitty Eddie Murphy movie. Even we though can't the... trick people into listening to it, even. <laughs> the... Eddie Murphy, by the way, missing from um, Mulan. Yeah, Mulan. oh, yeah. Here, look, we tied it back around. <laughs> yeah, somehow we got here. <laughs> and and you feel like that uh, that weekend's... That was something I was going to say, I guess, earlier in regards to the Mulan discussion, since we're back on that, is uh, all the time, you know, we're, we're complaining at the same time about these, you know, uh, shot for shot, you know, live action remakes a la Beauty and the Beast from Disney, but at the same time, you know, we don't want them to stray too far from the films we love. And so it's this com complicated push and pull, like it is with any adaptation or fandom or anything like that, where it's like, you know, God, why did you change everything? You know, we want it exactly the same. And then when it's exactly the same, everyone also is equally <laughs> upset. And it's more just... new than Aladdin or Lion King. Um... I I think it's one of their better ones since like Beauty and the Beast. I I was actually looking forward to it. Like this all Asian cast, it, a lot of things about it seemed like they were worth covering. But yeah, uh, I I guess to me the the indication of like the split fan bases there and everything just means that we should stop remaking things and just get back to new things again. Though you know, <laughs> I mean, I always agree with that. We have a we have a hit new film that you're excited to talk about. Oh yes, uh, I, I'm in my quest of watching new movies now. I've been assigned to review this latest Charlie Kaufman film, which just hit Netflix, and everyone is uh, talking about. I believe this is this is the current film that everyone's kind of hooked on right now. Yeah, I'm thinking yeah, of ending things. I think this is the film at the moment. It's funny because Tenet just came out and both somewhat play with their relationship to time, uh, and I feel like this has been like the the louder one, like among our friend group, like nobody's talking about Tenet, everyone's on this Kaufman kick. Well, I think generally that's that's the case. I think uh, Charlie Kaufman has been uh, boosting his profile over his, uh, you know, what was it, like 20 year career span now since being John Malkovich in 99. And, uh, you know, he moved to directing in the late 2000s with Synecdoche, New York. And then he did Anomalisa a couple of years back. 
and now this, of course. So like Kaufman's name is as much a selling point now as Nolan's is. And if anything, I think more so, I think as, as we see this further move away from the cinema, Nolan is becoming less and less of an appeal. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing with Kaufman, I find as well, is that his, his films are always toted as these, uh, you know, massive intellectual, you know, uh, spider webby kind of, you know, narrative deconstructions and stuff. But they still are accessible to like the mainstream, like everybody likes Charlie Kaufman films, despite how intellectually superior they tote themselves to be. his films ride this line of pomposity that that almost veers into but it's so careful not to like like that was definitely my 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 feeling watching adaptation i'm like you were so close to becoming the (laughs) biggest jackass in this but but you're doing adaptation (laughs) like toes that line the best like it's it's so near and it's it's only halfway up its own ass exactly and that's and that's the thing it's like his films often come so so close to being too hyper aware and too self-aggrandizing but they managed to to just be right enough except in like but this last one i think i'm seeing a collective agreement on that is is probably his least successful if you can call it successful for some people right um i don't even know how to define success anymore for like one of these netflix projects to me it's very clear what netflix has been like touting is their their main selling point that they're giving directors directors a full vision of their work. It's very clear to me that this had no edits. Um, this feels nothing like the formulaic Netflix films. Like uh, there's, you know, one month you put out the kissing booth, the next you put out, I'm thinking of ending things. There's like a small difference in like the context of what's happening here. Um, Kaufman, I, I just read most of Ant Kind. I want to keep reading it before I even deliver a take on that, but but we'll come back to that once I get there. And because of that, I was so excited because I think he's such a great literary presence. Even if I don't like his movies, I think he's so interesting for his literature. Are there, are there any of his movies in particular you don't like? I know because let, let's see, there's a uh, Malkovich uh, adaptation and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind were all the kind of the big ones he wrote. Yeah. And then he moved on to directing with Synecdoche, Anomalisa, and now this. Um, I I don't really have strong feelings um, about any of those. Uh, Eternal Sunshine seems like the one that keeps coming up as people's selling point or like their entry point of Kaufman. Um, John Malkovich is an amazing movie. Like there's yeah. there's so much conceptually. I've got to watch that a second time. I just got to it recently. Uh, I I love Malkovich quite a lot, and uh, I I would compare it the most to this latest film, not in terms of like tone or direction or even conceit that much but a lot of the same themes it, it dabbles into i think but i i definitely think that uh the the kind of absurd surrealist approach that uh john malkovich has is much better done than this kind of like existential sort of horror not really confused kind of you know uh obfuscated mess I mean, it's halfway to pomposity, but I feel like it's halfway to everything this time. I feel like everything is just, it's half horror, it's half existentialist, it's half nihilism. It feels like you're in Nietzsche, or it feels like you're in a film review from Pauline Kael. I mean, what's going on? I mean, it literally is. It literally is at one point. Like, we... uh, when me and my fiance were watching it and they, and they get to that scene and she takes out the cigarette in the car and starts and, they, and goes on this long rant about a woman under the influence. Yeah. And uh, th- we were kind of tipped off. I'm like, Oh, this feels very weird. And like, you know, like a total tangent thing, but you know, it's like this very like wordy dense, you know, film analysis review. And then we remembered the scene from earlier where she was looking through the room and there's this giant prominent, almost like lit up highlighted, book from Pauline Kale and we're like wait a second is this just literally a Pauline Kale review inserted into the middle of the film here I think it is auto criticism don't you I mean I think it's criticizing itself like we barely have to be here as critics because I think Kaufman's written the review for this movie I I, I guess I don't know it was was a very odd moment I I literally had to stop and looked and I'm I'm, I'm reading through the Kale review and I'm trying to find the part where he took out because of course Pauline Kale reviews are novels in and of themselves some yeah and and, um, and so I'm diving down. I'm like, yep, yep. This is just a straight up Pauline Kael review you've transplanted into your film here. 
I mean, it, it's not even like derivative or referential. It's literally inserting a review. I mean, it's like citing your work within your work. It's well, getting, it, hap- it happens a couple times because yeah. then, then there's a whole scene as well that's literally just the ballet sequence before like the intermission of Oklahoma stuffed in as well in the middle of school. It's literally just the ballet sequence that's in the, <laughs> the musical. Yeah. There's lots of... Yeah, and there's a myriad of other film and literary references um, that that all seem to not reflect something specifically. Like I was, I was particularly puzzled with this emphasis on Oklahoma uh, because Oklahoma is such a vapid and kind of dumb musical. <laughs> it's it's really about like nothing uh, and just yeah. character relationships and a kind of vapid love triangle. I don't know. It, it was very odd, and uh, I, I don't. And it's not that I don't understand what he's trying to say. I don't think he's saying anything with it. Um, I don't know. It brought me back to some really dark places, like like from dying in a coma. I remember like what the death dreams feel like, uh, and they're they're very similar. Like there are these flashes of life. It's, I guess we should say we're spoiling the whole movie now. There are flashes of life and. Um, the people, everyone I knew, all the people that were important in my life. But uh, so in some way, it feels so cerebral to me that I'm sticking on this movie. And now I have to go read the book and find out more about it. And I, I, it would make more sense to me as a book. Uh, after the, Aunt Kind, I wish she'd just write books. The book is very different from my uh, understanding, especially in the ending, which, which I won't get into here. But I know there's some things like, like I mentioned with like the Oklahoma, and I'm sure with the Cassavetes bit, total uh inventions of Kaufman here for this case and I don't know and I think it's more clear along the way I think it I think the way that it's written and it has reports of what's actually happened like the interspersed in the chapters there's definitely again there's like this intentional obfuscation of yeah. uh you know the material here and the but messaging well and and the thing is that it's it's that it it doesn't make it unclear it's just like needlessly confused and shrouded like i i think it's particularly obvious and simple what the the ultimate theme and message is it's just it's needlessly buried under the pomposity of the the conceit and the need to be narratively inventive and unique that the kaufman has kind of boxed himself into with this you know personality this directorial trait it's sticking with me more for like aesthetic and visceral reasons of like bringing me back to my coma than it is for anything like there's something to read into anything. I mean, there's there's like a bigness to the message that seems like, oh, I'm going to have to analyze this, but no, there's nothing to look at. Yeah, uh, and, and I'll admit to my as well that it kind of put me in a weird mood when I watched it yesterday too. Like, I, it, it I think it, off. It, it unintentionally like tanked my whole day afterwards because then me it too. kind of just sat with me. Like, and I don't feel like for good reasons. Like it's, I, I don't feel good or bad about it. It just kind of like, I don't know, stuck with me and hung like a cloud over the rest of the day uh, inexplicably. And I was just like, I don't, care that much just go away <laughs> why won't you leave me alone like it wasn't even uh, like i was thinking about it obsessively like my just i don't know why but my mood just totally deflated for the rest of the day <laughs> it's been like that for about four days for me i i haven't been able to shake the movie at all so as much as i think there's there's so little there i mean there, what's there is what is literal in the film it's the text of the film i mean take it at that but but i'm still thinking about it and i'm I, I think it's it's got to because it's got to be because we're trying to search for some greater meaning to the <laughs> to the, the the shrouding of everything there and you know the the conceit of it and why Kaufman made it needlessly complicated. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the reason why I'm just trying to. I guess I'm still thinking and trying to deconstruct why it is the way it is because it doesn't need to be. There's not really. Other than Kaufman films, I can't think of other films like it. So there is something I've, unique to recommend it on. I've seen comparisons to Mulholland Drive, There's which uh, I I kind of understand in the sense that it's like a, it's a lot about like kind of mixed identities and stuff, and there's a very kind of dreamlike confusion and structure to it and all that. But I would not call them the same movie by any stretch, even mm-hmm. despite my well uh, cataloged distaste for Mulholland Drive. 
the most literal thing. I think it was Mulholland that where when you call yourself on the phone, that's like a David Lynch thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it is like the surrealism of Lynch. I could see what where it could be inspired in parts, but I, it's not the same movie at all. Yeah, I, I guess he's the closest filmmaker I would describe to Kaufman because there is a thread of surrealism in most of his films, and yeah. you know, I mean, either like Boone Wellian or. Lynchy and I, it, I don't want to describe it as that because Kaufman is its own thing I think. Yeah I, again it's, it's hard to nail what exactly is close but I guess we'll put them kind of in the same camp. Yeah. yeah. Welcome to Surrealism Camp Kaufman. <laughs> I don't know I, I have more thoughts on it I'm trying to get them out now uh, you know you told me to review this one and I said okay and then when I finished it, I'm like I don't want to review this. <laughs> you know, yeah, it just seems like a lot. I, but, I'm but, very curious what you'll say. So I'm but I do have, I realize I do have thoughts on it and I do feel like I can say a lot. So I want to write it. It just, it feels definitely like less satisfying to write about than I would like. <laughs> I I wouldn't know where to start. Um, so looking forward to your work on that. Yeah, hopefully it manifests. I don't know. Maybe I'll think of ending things. <laughs> Um, I think we should think of ending that discussion. Uh, this this week's discussion, you, uh, I think you'd be a little mad at me, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how this one goes. I enjoyed Dazed and Confused, but that doesn't seem to be enough for you. <laughs> there's, it's never enough. Um, I wouldn't that's, have that's fair. accepted that's anything, fair. but this is a heralded masterpiece in the, the most acclaimed teen movie of all time. It's, it's it, kind of, it is. I, I won't, I won't disagree with you that it is certainly the most acclaimed though. You know, I, I think I have my own affection for others. And I think a lot of where people land with these particular kind of teen movies, uh, a lot of it depends on when, where, how you watched it, you know, nostalgia factors into it. I think a whole lot because the whole film is, a giant nostalgic ode to, you know, the teenage years of the the 1970s and such. And even for people who didn't live through that, I think it does resonate in a, in a great way. Uh, I think we both at least lived through a lot of classic rock and the idea yeah. of like what that means to an American childhood and young adulthood. That that um, was definitely, when I was watching, I couldn't help but think of uh, Cameron Crowe. Like it, yeah. it made me think of a Cameron Crowe film because of the, the the prominence and importance of that music plays as a central uh, facet here. And of course, I also drew upon like American Graffiti was an obvious other point to go back to. Like this feels like a kind of successor to that and the way it looks back at the decade, but instead of the 60s, it's the 70s. Mm. Uh, as far as like teen comedies go, I was thought I thought of like Fast Times at Ridgemont High from, you know, the decade prior. Like I think there's like exactly a decade between the two. They're and, very uh, close movies. I think they well, and be Fast brothers. Times is Fast Times is like an obvious staple of like the mm-hmm. teen comedy genre as well. Uh, I think the the difference with that one being that it it tackles some more serious subject matters that people forget that Fast Times does. Yeah, I I, I it's we funny get to Fast Times movie. Whenever people talk about Fast Times, nobody mentions that there's a whole serious abortion subplot going on. They just talk about Phoebe Cates, you know, stripping off her bikini top to moving in stereo and, you know, Sean Penn uh, playing the most hilarious stoner ever. Dazed and confused. I think it embodies like a certain spirit and mentality. I mean, it has like a credo of the 70s just by... It's titled Days and Confused. You're conjuring a Led Zeppelin already. No, no Led Zeppelin songs live, in the movie, though. No Led you have Zeppelin to live songs. Up to it. Yeah, there's no Led Zeppelin songs, though, because they are uh, infamously stingy about handing out their songs to films. But, I mean, it makes sense that it's like the embodiment of it and that they'd have to put it in the title. Yeah, no, I think it's a good one, but obviously you could go with a bunch of other ones as well. Like when, when Linklater made a spiritual sequel this past decade, he did a Van Halen song instead. Yeah, everybody wants them, which I I just recently got to. And I think that's what put me over to understand that this isn't just like nostalgia for me, that there's something tangible here that I'm I'm finding. And that it is a, one of the big American movies about um, misspent youths and kids who think they know everything, but really they don't understand anything. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very curious to hear more of your thoughts on why this is so masterful and like the, the top shelf of teen comedies and what it addresses that really resonates because it's it's definitely, uh, you know, obviously I had things that didn't resonate with me as much, but I see where a lot of the appeal is. It is a very fun movie. I think it's it's got a nice uh, cast of characters. And one of my favorite things about it is that I think it captures the aesthetic of the 70s 
brilliantly. It, it looks and feels like the 70s at every moment in the film. And I was really impressed with that, just even out the gate from like the costume design to the set designs and all of the cars and everything, uh, you know, and they don't always feel like they're like just brand new shiny cars like that you usually get in mm-hmm. period films like this. You know, they definitely felt like there was character to them. It there in a lot of times the film feels pornographic in some way like the lowrider clips with the lowrider song you get something of the cars and i mean it's very like uh masturbatory about like that period of time so i understand that how you could be put off by it there's a I, I'm always surprised by how much hazing is actually in the movie yeah <laughs> that was a lot that was that was one of the the big things I guess when I took issue uh it, it was mostly in the first half because luckily uh there there's a nice uh payoff for it there's a there's a comeuppance that comes with uh with Ben Affleck's character that feels uh gratifying but uh th- there is a one of my main critiques, I guess, uh, is that there's a blanket of, you know, n- nostalgia and fondness for the entire film. So even like the hazing stuff feels like, oh man, you know, remember those days? It was fun. You know, you know, we, we look back and yeah, it sucked to get paddled by seniors and stuff. But, you know, it was part of growing up and what made our time so enjoyable. And, and I don't think it excuses it. Whatsoever. From a modern perspective, it's kind of like, uh, that's really fucked up and we've kind of come a long way. It, it feels weird to to have these nostalgic goggles on Disney scenes as well. Um, I, I do think there is a, a kind of importance that we should place on when, when looking back to have a, a critical lens on some of these things as well. And but, I think the movie is wholly critical. I think it gets to a point where the lessons are learned and someone faces this kind of retribution over nothing and they they find you know they find their salvation they figure out that getting aerosmith tickets is the only thing that matters at the end of the summer this none of this bullshit does you know they quit the football team the girl refuses to do the air raid like they they learn from their abuses and they realize that they don't want to be a part of that system that does that and perpetuates it Sure, sure. For for specific characters, uh, definitely they yeah. have those uh, important arcs that kind of uh, showcase that. the The football one is kind of weird because it's it's kind of built around this like needing to sign this bogus contract that you're not going to do any drugs or anything. Like, it it, it does feel like a weird uh, thing that you could probably skirt around if, if you had signed it. But it, it is definitely more of a you know. Uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, like, like a character stance taking against it as a, as a moral ground. But it was, it was more so some of the things like, cause it is like the paddling and stuff is played for like comedy and, and humor and stuff. And like when the, the mother with the shotgun comes out and points it at Ben Affleck, you know, it's, it's used as kind of like a humorous anecdote when if you, if you think about it, it's like super messed up. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like the, I feel like the shotgun is the film judging. I feel like it's constantly judging. Well, I, uh, it has a lot of flawed characters, but I don't need the film to have like a angry music over someone getting beat to know what it means. By that. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at the same time as well. Again, it's it's more so how the framing is just like all you know uh, nostalgic. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that the film needs to condemn it outright or anything or say it's bad, but it, it feels like it's ro- romanticizing everything about you want a voiceover by orson wells telling us how morally corrupt these kids are i just i just need you know what if we had taken that comeuppance bit from magnificent ambersons put it over ben affleck getting uh pink canned i i I think i would like it but that's just because every film is improved by orson wells voiceover (laughs) unfortunately i do find a lot of these moments funny i mean they are funny that's the thing yeah they, they are funny and i and i uh I don't know. It's hard to say because again, I don't want to say it's irresponsible. It's just it's from a modern perspective. And again, this is this is me more so putting I think my old man glasses and looking back and and l- without like the arrogance of youth and and seeing how you know. And this, kind of, this movie very much about arrogance of youth. Certainly, definitely, but but it it feels very embracing of it in 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 lots of ways. I just think it's reflecting something like a, I think it's ultimately a progressive movie, but it's still about a high school in Texas in the seventies. Like look at a high school today in Texas. It's not yeah. that, that. That was an interesting thing. And again, it, it kind of reminded me of a lot of just how 
things have changed modernly. Like what they go to Lee High School, and recently okay. we have all of these, you know, these push to change, you know, Confederate monuments and schools and government buildings being named after Confederate generals and such. And that's a huge one. There's so many Lee High Schools out there which are now getting their name changed, and so it is reflecting. I, I definitely do feel like it is a portrait, uh, kind of an you know an un, untaint, untinted portrait of the time period. Um, but you know, at, at the same time, I think you know, whenever looking back, it's important to to bring context generally. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't. I just think it's definitely not that movie. I think it's so freewheeling and freeform, like built it is. Like the 70s mentality. I think it like matches what like 70s directors were doing, like with the form and shape of their movies. I feel like Lee Clayton captures that exactly. I, I agree with that. It doesn't feel like a 90s film as much not at all. to me. Not... It definitely feels way more 70s kind of uh, observational a lot of the times. It's very structureless despite having those key character arcs and it is uh, kind of inhabited by so many. You could almost, I think, uh, I wouldn't go as far as to maybe compare it to an Altman film, but it feels kind yeah. of like it with the mass amount of characters and, and such and all the arcs going on. This would probably make a good double feature with shortcuts. It really would. I think uh... I think it has like Altman with attitude. I mean, it it is like embroiled in a different culture and it's led by the music. These these kids are all partying and having a good time. Like that's the presentational layer of this. But as within that, it functions as a reflection of the society they're in and their influences and how they're raised. Um, it, it is very different today. Like a teen movie today would be a lot softer. It wouldn't have these hard edges. If uh, I, I, one of the ones I compared to was kind of the teen movie of my era, which would have been uh, super bad. I thought about, you know, a good bit when watching and stuff. There's a lot of similar things, a lot of the, the party culture and stuff and then, you know, the need to, to seek out these things. But they're also very different films. So I think it's yeah. hard to compare. There's definitely a more clear, like, narrative structure there, character arcs, you know, bigger drama going on and stuff. Uh, and the humor is vastly different. This is, uh, I, I've just heard it, Dazed and Confused described as like the ultimate like hangout movie and it, it kind of really is because it, it is just kind of freewheeling and you know uh, I don't want to say directionless but just kind of you know you know uh, hanging around and, and moving uh, kind of nonchalantly from scene to scene. Well it kind of moves at the same pace as characters they don't know where they're going at all so I think yeah. directionless isn't even an unfair description I mean I think that I mean, I think they're mostly rudderless and it kind of follows their pace. I mean, I, it, we're hanging out with them and doing their bullshit activities. I just didn't want to attribute directionless to Linklater's work either because I do feel like he composes some very great sequences here and he's got a very good eye uh, throughout. He's, he's really so architectural in his shots. Like everything has like a framing idea and there's, there's always uh, something in the frame that looks like it's uh, symmetrical somehow. Uh, he always finds symmetry in his shots, and I'm just a big fan of Linklater anyway. Do you feel like there's any key scenes in Dazed and Confused that always stand out in your mind that uh, showcases his, his really great direction? God, you can't even think of, like, like you say, it's so free-flowing that, I mean, there's, there's the parts that stand out are really audio-visual. It's the stuff like, uh, you know, the school's out forever and uh, the lowrider bits. and Very and literal musical selections there they'll yeah. give him credit because Alice Cooper wrote that song 100% with that intention forever <laughs> yeah I mean that was I mean the songs are also very close to their intentions so I mean there's really very few shots that'd be like oh let's put this on one perfect shot and call it a day but I, I think audio visually like the movement of it and the style really it's really fluid and it matches the style of the music I mean that ethos perfectly for me to me sometimes because of that lack of distinct moments that come out it does the film can feel kind of homogenous in in some ways but it's still like like i said generally enjoyable and I, I didn't find it unpleasant necessarily yeah. you know at, at any you liked point the movie. yeah yeah i did i, I want to emphasize that even though i i obviously uh you know take i guess some issue as a man yelling at clouds <laughs> <laughs> absolutely I mean, uh, I'm an older guy. Let's say when I discovered this movie, I was probably just like any of the characters. I was really burnt out at a party or something, and it was on, and I was just, you know, passed out. And yesterday, I'm sitting here watching it on the iPad with Mickey Mouse Clubhouse above me. How the times change. I, and I think it's very easy to enjoy, especially as that that kind of you know just absorbing experience because uh, you've got that complement of the the incredible soundtrack selection. Um, it's you one know, of the best. Yeah. 
yeah even if it like at times i'm like you know it it just feels like a reflection of the times and not necessarily a comment or an emphasis on a scene it's all what the movie is it's a reflection of the times i know i know i know (laughs) but but it's also other things as well it's also it's got those character arcs and stuff like that's one of the things i feel like if it if it went even more into just being kind of an observational like documentation kind of 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 the times then i would have liked it even better but because it tries to be more than than sometimes it slips and falls there there are just (laughs) too many good moments you have like this slow ride you have like the black sabbath alice cooper they're just uh, some of my favorite moments set to music are in this movie that i like I, I think my favorite as far as music set moments was when uh hurricane by by bob dylan came on which is such yeah, a great that, great song and every, every movie could use more bob dylan songs it's a nice place for it too where it settles into a different tone and bob dylan perfectly kind of frames that and i i mean i think he also finds like the symmetry between feeling and expression of those times um I mean, he's able to match like image and costume and like a sense of place. And all of these things are always apparent. There's never a moment where you're like, where is this movie set? Where am I? What am I doing here? There's always a good context. Mm -hmm. It's also one of those. uh, One moment. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Leaving it in. I was going to say, it's also one of those uh, prolific films where like the, the quotes and, you know, moments uh, that do really stick out have, have become pervasive in, in popular culture, particularly surrounding uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, who has like <laughs> five lines that everyone knows from the movie, despite having not seen it. He doesn't have that many lines in the movie. I mean, five almost encapsulates his Everything. Uh, productive work in the movie. Yeah, he, he doesn't even show up. I, I mean, I timed it this time till 40 minutes in. No, no McConaughey, nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone thinks of that, but most of the movie isn't that. Yeah, and, and it's great, really though. a lot more. Yeah, and he is great he, just because he's uh, really good at what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> Would you say it's like the first time he's really like playing Matthew McConaughey and he really like establishes what his career will be? It's like basically uh, I don't really know earlier than that what he was up to. I you know I'm not as familiar with him. I'm not a Matthew McConaugheyologist or anything like that. Uh, but I believe this is where people mostly first recognize him from. And even just recently. Oh no, that like, that actually is. This is his first film. That's fantastic. <laughs> just to arrive like fully formed like that. Just. Oh man, he's so cool, and I mean, his character very reprehensible. But yeah, I, I was gonna say cool, you know, and that's the thing is like he's a also predatory. <laughs> yeah, well, and and that's what I thought about, like like looking back and, and why I felt like an old person watching it. I'm like, you know, the these people and like, and like the bullies as well. I'm like, these people aren't like cool. They're all losers still hanging yeah. out with high school. Like, like when they when they pull up to the middle school and yell at them that they're gonna like paddle them all and do and i'm like what the fuck are wrong with these guys this is the best thing they have to do is to go like terrorize middle schoolers there's not anything cool about that (laughs) i think you grew up with the internet so i think your childhood was probably different (laughs) and and yeah and there's it's it's different at the same thing and i'm wondering like because i'm like well i'm also aware that these are real traditions that that did happen and stuff but i'm also aware I, that like i really don't think like this much hazing ever happened <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that in, in media has distorted it so much like this yeah. has become like the history that we we look back to and understand and like was it really this bad i know that there was like sort of like and, and that's the thing is like the practice of hazing in general was basically dead by the time i got into high school there was like in my freshman year a big thing there in my freshman year there were these like hints or echoes of hazing or like traditions or initiations and stuff that that happened in certain cliques but they they mostly didn't come to fruition and they kind of just faded out and stuff uh so i and i think that's part of where there's a disconnect uh i think for for maybe a modern generation watching the film but at at the same time it is still a time capsule of the period and there's there's value in that like i don't even know if a modern generation goes cruising like if that's really their thing like it's, i don't it's still i don't a think thing so for me like we just drove around town looking for some kind of trouble like that was our entire high school experience i guess it also depends on where you're at too because again that the the southern uh environment is also adds a lot to that there you know and car yeah. culture and stuff uh coming from a small but not that small town uh where i could literally kind of walk around the entire uh area 
you know, I, there was never any real cruising to be done. <laughs> There's nowhere to cruise, right? <laughs> There's really not much to cruise to. There was no place to kind of hang out to, like, you know, and... Uh, but also, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, I was uh, what we call a loser oh. in uh, high school, and I didn't really go into any parties. I think the closest thing I came to was that there was like a, a big bonfire uh, the summer of my freshman year, and that was like the closest I got to hanging out with anyone that we would consider cool. And uh, I mean, I guess I was in like a <laughs> I was in like wrestling team, so in some way I had to be responsible for some hazing. But ours was so minor compared to this movie. I also think back 70s, like you, if you got in trouble at all, you're getting beaten by the principal. Like physical fights were a very valid way to handle things back then. Yeah, uh, and, and it's very different. Kid, so when that, I was a kid, the teachers approved of us going to fight. It was fine. Yeah, and, and that's obviously kind of the case here as well. Like there's that scene in, like I said, with the middle school where the teacher is kind of just like rolling his eyes, but also kind of in, endorsing or at least accepting that this is the thing that's going to happen is all the middle schoolers kind of cower and afraid of the beatings that they're going to receive. Yeah, he thinks it's kind of funny or, or he's like, oh, these kids again, it's that time of year. I'm nostalgic well, for my youth. There's even a scene with the, the, the girls when they're doing their hazing with like the ketchup bottles and stuff and also like going up to guys and saying i'll do anything to marry you which again also weird and, and kind of uncomfortable modern wise but they say you know i did this when you know i had to go through this when i was a freshman and you'll get to do this too you know so they they talk about this idea of tradition of hazing in the film and, and comment on it a little bit especially in that part it gets probably a little bit too sexualized <laughs> uh, it, i mean it's interesting it's very pornographic and it's like shooting the girls and uh it makes hazing into like a, a sexual control yeah. thing. But at, at the same time, it's also not something to ignore or to repress because yeah, you know, sexual discussion and, and the idea of that and the crudeness of it is was still a you know prevalent aspect of my youth experience and high school experience. Right. I mean, in this in this setting, like the biggest sexual thing you could do is take a ride in a car with someone. Like that 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 implies you're gonna go like fucking the fields, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, when people say, you know, oh, you got in his car, that means did you go fuck? Like that was like the whole premise of like car culture was it was about sex and everything's about sex in that era, like musically too. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and it, and it captures a lot. But, you know, I, at the same time, I was watching the film reminded of all of the other teen comedies before and since that I that I really love. And it kind of, it, it all fine, it fell in the same camp, but reminded me what I loved about those ones as well. You know, uh, I, I would say it's probably the, uh, you know, uh, eponymous or, you know, trademark uh, rock and roll teen film. I mean, it's the one that got in the Criterion Collection. It has critical support where others don't quite like teen comedies rarely get that kind of treatment. And, and I'll say as well that my, my souring on these films doesn't exist just in this one. Uh, you know, I, I've lost affection for John Hughes films over the years as well, particularly similar ones like this, like the breakfast club. Uh, I think I commented on that on our quasi breakfast club podcast that uh, I don't think the film has aged terribly well. And I think generally his his style and observation of, of teens at the time uh, doesn't reflect anything uh, substantial now. I feel like there's something between like Altman and John Hughes. We're looking at like Breakfast Club, but this is one of my favorite ensembles in a movie. Like, uh, the the characters are are so fully developed, like Slater, and I mean they just have so much personality. Not all of them get arcs, but they have uh, yeah. good personalities. I, I would say they have personalities for sure. I don't know if I'd say they're like fully fleshed out necessarily. They all have, they all have small arcs anyway. I mean, they have their stories developed. Yeah, very basic stories. Th there is the like the the sheer amount of them. I think sometimes gets in the way of developing more of them. But you know, at the same time, that's that's always an issue you're going to have with giant casts. And you I, know, like I think I disagree. I think like the ensemble is like the most encouraging part of this. They're they're so good. I think that's what makes it between like Altman and Hughes, like an improvement on both of their ideas about that. I, yeah, I, I can see. Uh, I think it would be criminal of me not to mention uh, one of my more favorite uh, teen comedies that are overlooked here. And uh, particularly one that my fiance showed me, which is, uh, are you familiar at all, Calvin, with uh, Detroit Rock City? Not, not very. No, I've seen it long ago. Uh, they're going to like a kiss concert is that the one yeah yeah, yeah. it's got and, and it's much more narratively focused obviously it just it, it kind of reminded me in so many ways especially like once we get to the moment of them painting the 
the statues, the school statues with the the kiss makeup and stuff. Uh, I just I, I love that one a lot too because I feel like it's it's really well fleshed out and captures that, but also has really you know a strong narrative composition as well that I enjoy. But I, I think I also mentioned. Fast Times is another one I think about that's also very good in the same vein. But Dazed, certainly up there as well, you know, it, it does a lot and captures the feeling. And uh, I, I mentioned it in conjunction with American Graffiti as well. And I would say that I like this more than that in particular because uh, it has lots of similar vibes, but, you know, definitely more appealing directly to me. Yeah, um, this is just a heralded classic for a reason. I mean, thousands of people have analyzed it and I haven't never seen your take, which makes it interesting to me. I don't want to devalue it. Um, I just feel like there's there's a good critical mass that supports this and sure, sure. I'm kind of inside that cult. Uh, I think it's a broad cult too. A movie like this could be annoying because you're constantly told all your life that this is like a representation of a young adulthood and this is like what everyone's childhood movie has to be, but it doesn't have to be this. Well, yeah, and and it's the I guess the other thing is that uh, you know, it's important to also consider the the dissenting takes, even if uh, they're not all that dissenting. <laughs> even if you're the only one that believes it. But I mean, but I understand the uh, you know, if there's any deluge of hate that will come my way from this or anything. Like if someone tried to tell me the same things about uh, Citizen Kane or something, I would probably also be up in arms. I don't even really feel up in arms. I mean, I'll accept No, it. no, I'm not saying you're up in arms or anything. It's I'm just too saying chilled out of the movie for me to have the same feelings that I did about a fistful of dollars. Well, that, that's, that's the thing. Of it. And, when I, and I, why I'd be confused by it. it I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to see it like as a, as a masterpiece craft with kind of how laid back it is. I'm trying to think of something in a similar vein that I would categorize more emphatically. Um, again, yeah, there's not, a movie. Not trying to to take Better. away from it in any way, but you know, I I can't help but see so many things with it from a from a modern lens and this kind of blanket of acceptance that it applies to everything. And again, not I, to say, I mean, the whole movie leads toward a denial of everything that's shown in the movie. I don't know what I don't know how often you need it spelled out. I'm not saying I need it spelled out. <laughs> I don't know. It's a I, I do have a hard time, I think, articulating it, and I would that's I would fair. love to sit on it a bit more. But but definitely, you know. Uh, more so in the first half, you know, certain things rubbed me wrong and, and I didn't feel fully taken in by it until late, later. But I see, of course, why the appeal is so broad and encompassing and why it's so beloved and enjoyable. And of course, and I, I do think a lot of that also just comes back to the aesthetic, the, the visual composition, and especially the music, uh, which helps emphasize and transcend every moment. I think you'll also understand where where I kind of get off on it because of my audio visual. Oh yeah, yeah, you, I, that's your thing. Because something like an architectural director who looks at framing and also matches it to music. I mean, that's really all I need. Look, it's a, it's a good thing that the film is set in Texas and not the Pacific Northwest. Otherwise, you'd probably actually hate me. You know, because this would check off literally all of your boxes. Then, <laughs> if it were in Portland or Seattle, I think like a. If you combine this and um, 10 Things ten I things. Hate About You, I think you'd have my perfect teen movie. They're like both, that, my they're, idea. I'd hang it on the wall. like. That. Yeah. That <laughs> would be exactly it. That, I think it's funny still that I had to show you that one, but I'm glad we did cover that one when we did. That one was fun. Yeah, I'd really recommend that podcast. That was a blast to do. <laughs> um, what's that Bogdanovich movie about the, the teens? And La- last Picture Show. This definitely Wait. has some last picture show vibes to it a little bit it's, it's not super as dust, yeah. it's it's not melancholic like that one is in any regard but uh definitely those those kind of feelings you know texas town teens you know uh you know youthful teen culture stuff all that but that one definitely has a a greater kind of melancholic spirit to it and there there's more narratives going on with the older generation and stuff too there so not quite the same but definitely uh i i would be shocked if link later was not influenced by uh that <laughs> he absolutely was i mean i can't even pull a, a situation where he wouldn't be uh it, it's just like that but but link later enjoyed it i mean he had a good <laughs> like he was nostalgic for it uh his his time as a youth obviously and i think there's a lot of personal influence on it clearly i read that there was like a lawsuit from a bunch of his old friends from Texas who characters are named oh, really? after like, like 20 years later or something. And it got thrown out because it was after the statute of limitations. 
but I mean, it, it feels very personal. It feels like it had to come from someone who but, lived this, and, and that's definitely someone where who also lived it. I, I mean, I, I appreciate that. And and to kind of circle back, that's also kind of what echoed the Cameron Crowe vibes I was getting in this kind of uh, almost famous air vein there. Yeah, because it also has that that kind of thing going on. But uh, yeah, overall enjoyable i see why you love it i'm sorry i didn't love it more of course uh, I, think but... <laughs> it, I think it captures like a certain kind of 90s director like going like south and midwest we're looking at like link later link later soderberg uh you know like sling blade we were getting all these like a uh, midwestern southern vibed uh movies that developed uh, another part of the country that hollywood had typically ignored and hadn't really celebrated so in some way this feels unique and of its time I don't know how you can say that Hollywood didn't celebrate Southern culture when Gone with the Wind is still the most, you know, uh, financially successful film of all time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe modern Southern culture, but, you know. I mean, that's a history lesson. But <laughs> There's nothing relevant about uh, Gone with the Wind anymore. No, it definitely doesn't pertain to anything uh, history has no relevance on today. No. Wink. <laughs> But thanks again, uh, Calvin, for talking to me about this film and accepting my lukewarm take on this film that you love so much. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, it was it was fair. I think I think you were mostly fair, but uh, I, I tried negative to, on it. I, I I tried not to be negative, uh, but at the same time, like it's it's such a like chilled out and like vibing movie. Like I feel I feel uh, hard pressed to say something like specifically that was amazing uh, outside of like the soundtrack and the visual recreation and, and the general vibe of it, because that's, I think what its most prominent strengths are as opposed to writing or like arcs or, you know, thematic content, which it's obviously, you know, kind of lesser prioritized. Well, would have been a lot cooler if he did, but thanks, <laughs> You know, the 68 Democratic convention was probably the most bitchin' time I ever had in my life. Hey guys, one more thing. Hey, this summer, when you're being inundated with all this American Bicentennial Fourth of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating, and that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. Yeah! Oh, yeah we got it.